I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I now, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory to Christ Jesus. To you, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we come to the very end of the book of Philippians, where we are wrapping up this quick series that we've had, talking about joy and rejoicing. And yet again, we see Paul saying to the church in Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord! He can says that I rejoice in the Lord right now. And he plays that out for us about what it looks like to have a shared life and what that shared life does for us. I have a problem. And that problem is I relish in the subculture of Christianity. I don't know if you recognize that there is a major culture in the world, and then there is underneath that major culture all sorts of little subcultures and sub-definitions. And there's a subculture of Christianity that operates within the world. And oftentimes what it does is it grabs hold of things in the broader scope of the world and sorts, uh, uh, tries to sanitize them. Like take a, a, a Purell wipe and wipe it down and make it good enough for us as Christians to listen to. So it happens with, with rock and roll music. So they'll go, oh, you like the Rolling Stones, then maybe you'll like this band that's some Christian band. Or you like heavy metal music, and so Striper was the band whenever I was growing up that you'll like. So there were these big hair band, metal bands, and they would make them these Christian versions of those. They do it with rap now uh, as well. One of the things that's interesting, though, is the sort of self-propagating parts of Christian subculture that comes about. And when I was growing up, there was a thing called the power team with John Jacobs. Now, John Jacobs got his start as a prison minister, and he recognized that there were tons of guys who were in prison, a captive audience, by the way, who never showed up 
to his chapel services, and he needed to figure out a way to get them to be there. Now, John was a big man. I mean, not big as in what I used to be, but big as in muscular and strong. And he lifted weights a lot. And the warden happened to tell him that it's very easy for someone to break handcuffs. You just have to know the right torque and the right leverage. So it's physics, basically, how to break handcuffs very easily. And so one day, he got a pair of handcuffs. And he stood in front of this group of prisoners, about five of them that were showing up, and he stood there and he talked about being in chains. Now that's something they recognized, they identified. I mean, they weren't going anywhere. And he all of a sudden decided, I'm going to show them that Jesus can break your chains. Now he'd learned from the warden how to do it, but he was also big and muscular and strong. And so he went, pop, and broke these handcuffs. Now all of those guys, all five of them, had been thinking their whole time, I wish I knew how to do that earlier. They had completely forgot that maybe it was about Jesus and just like, how did he do that? But the next time he came to speak, there were more than five guys there. And the next time he came to speak, there were more. And he recognized that there was a way to draw a crowd by showing great fits and and, uh, events of strength. And he started gathering all these other big, muscular, burly bros. And they would go out and they would go to schools where they wouldn't get to talk about Jesus because you can't talk about Jesus in public schools in the States. But then they would invite them to come to churches and they would fill sanctuaries and chapels filled with kids and filled with adults to see them do things like taking a big yellow pages from New York City, which is about this thick, and ripping it in half. Or taking a hot water bottle heater, you know, hot water bottles that you fill up that are very thick plastic and blowing them up until they would explode and, of course, put out the eye of the guy that is actually blowing them up. Very dangerous. Should never try it. And then John Jacobs would get up with his handcuffs and he would break them again. And in some sense, there was this idea that that verse that we saw here that Paul says that in all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there was this perception that it was Jesus who was making them be able to do these great fits of strength. That it was Jesus who was somehow empowering. As a matter of fact, sometimes it would get so overdone and over the top that he'd be like, come on guys, you're not praying hard enough. I can't break this or I can't rip this or I can't blow this up. Come on guys, I can't run through this wall of of ice. A guy used to run through a wall of ice. Like this thick. Jesus. Okay. That's a deep subculture. Now, I don't know those men, never met them. I don't doubt that they love Jesus. I don't doubt their sincerity in that at all. But it shows us that there are some times in our lives when we will hear passages like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and we'll lift them out of a passage, and we'll try to apply them in our lives in certain ways. We'll think to ourselves, well, I can be the best at this because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be the best at my job because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Oh, I can raise as much money as I need because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a promise that we want to receive, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Oh, I'm sick, that's okay, I'll get healed because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
My, my relationships are falling apart. That's okay, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it becomes sort of a passive-aggressive sort of stance within the gospel. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Come on, Christ, get it done. Strengthen me so that I can accomplish not what you necessarily want me to accomplish, but so what I can do what I heart desire to do. And so when we come to this passage, it's real easy for us to get tripped up on that word, on that little sentence there. It's real easy that we've taken it out and we've put it on placards and posters and little ornamental things and said, yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But I want us to take time just to dig a little bit deeper into that. And what, what is he actually saying? Where is he going and what was he fighting against in that? He says to them, I rejoice greatly now that you at length have received your concern. You have now concern for me or you've indeed been concerned for me, but you haven't had opportunity. And then he goes on and says, not that I'm speaking that I'm in want, because I want you to understand that I have learned to be content in all circumstances. That's a scary word for us. Content. Because there's some sense that we shouldn't be content, right? We, we think to ourselves, when we hear that word, that it could mean that we're lazy, that, that I've grown content, and we equate it with apathy, that I just don't want to do anymore, I don't want to think about it anymore, so I'll just, I'll just sit here and let it happen. But that's not the powerful word that's here. That word actually, at this time when Paul was writing it, was very much attached to stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy had a way of looking at the world that said, as I look at the world, I'm not going to let it affect me. I'm going to be nonplus about it. I'm going to not, not let it get to me. I'm going to stand firm in who I am in my self-sufficiency and my self-reliance, and I'm going to be able to overcome it. And oftentimes a Stoic would have to remove themselves relationally from people. They would have to move themselves uh, away from circumstances in order to actually live that way. Because if you begin to have relationships with people, then their relationships pour out on you, and it's hard, very hard for you to not be engaged with them. And so you have to sort of treat them not as something, as somebody, but as treat them as something. You're something to overcome. Or you're something to put up with. <laughs> In order for me to be content, I put up with you. I don't engage with you. Because I want to be self-sufficient and content. Sometimes it caused them to look at the future in very much a, a, a fatalistic way, a negative way. Uh, they had to discount and provide worst-case scenarios so that they could prepare themselves emotionally if those things took place. It kind of works this way. Anytime my, anybody that I love leaves my presence, for a very quick split second, I think that they will not return. Now what that does for me, as a Stoic, because I, I really kind of get that, is I go, if they don't return, how am I going to respond? Well, I don't want to be a blubbering idiot on the floor because I've got other people to take care of. So I need to be strong and sufficient. So if they don't come back, everything's going to be all right. And I will get through it. And I'll be able to work on it. Now listen, it's not a lingering thought. It's not something that affects me all. It is literally, 
that quick it can run through my hands. You might not do that. That's awesome. I'm glad that doesn't happen to you. But it does to me. Because I like stoicism. You know why? Because it's self-sufficient. Because I don't need something from somebody else. I have the ability to do it. And that's the word that Paul's using here. Content. But I want you to notice what he does. Is he takes this word and he shows them that it's not contentment in self. It is contentment in Christ. He says to them, I've learned this secret in, in abounding and in need, in every circumstances, whether I'm hungry or I have plenty, whether I have all that I need or I have nothing at all, I have learned to be content, but not self-sufficiently, in Christ who gives me so he's not talking about all things, even though he says, in all things I've learned to be in strength in all things. What he's saying is that in, in my need to be whole, it is not within me to make myself that way. It is within Christ to make me that way. He's saying, look, no matter what my circumstance is, no matter what's going on. And he's had plenty, and he's had nothing at all. Right now, as he's writing that, he has a Roman soldier who's chained to him. He's in a small cell that's there in Rome. He has a very small diet that he's allowed to eat every day. And he says, regardless of my circumstances, I have learned to be content. Not because of me, not because I, Paul, have learned to go, yeah, this guy's not that bad, and I like him all right, and this food, hey, it's helping me lose weight, and this, you know, I could be in a much smaller cell. He's not discounting any of that. What he's saying is that in Christ, all along this book has been about, in Christ, I have the ability to do it. But notice, he goes on to say, but your partnership has been important to this. Your shared living with me has been important with, to this. He starts off with it, says, I rejoice that you've been able to renew your concern for me, and he steps back into it, and he says this, you were the ones who gave to me when I began. You are the ones who have supplied this gift through Epaphroditus, who has been pleasing to who? God. What Paul recognizes here is that when we've been placed in Christ, as those of us who are following him, that when we're placed in Christ, we're placed there not individually, not by ourselves, but with each other. And that it is with each other that we're able to look around and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That there are moments when we are weak and we are feeble. There are moments when we're trying to blow up the hot water bottle. And we can't do it, and we have to say to each other, I need you to take a turn. Not just cheer me on, brother, but start blowing. Because I need your help. Because I can't do this by myself. And I know I'm not alone. He's saying, I know that I'm not alone. You have brought these things, the Father has brought these things into our lives. So I'm able to what? Rejoice. Because I've been given that. No matter what circumstances. And what is his response to that? As he's wrapping this letter up. His response is worship. 
when he begins to think about it, when he begins to think about the fact that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which means you all working together, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, that we move into a place of contentment, not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency, that all that we need, all that we ever should desire is found in Christ alone. That in that, my only response can be glory and honor and praise to God. He ends with a doxology. He ends by saying, to God and the Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he greets everybody. And he reminds us that even in the house of Caesar, right now there are saints, those who are following Christ, who greet them as well. How amazing is that? That as he has been chained to these Roman guards, as he is set in the house of Caesar, that there are men and women who have begun to follow after him. That all the saints greet them. Why? Because he knows that we need one another, that God has brought us together. That rejoicing, that this joy of the Christian life comes through shared life. A life where we recognize the needs of one another. That we're never called to be discontent because we don't have to be. Why? Because we have others to carry us along. It's not just about you and you alone. That was the downfall of Stoicism. It isolated. It brought people to themselves. It brought people only to who they were. Me. I can do it. I will create a world within myself insularly. I will be able to deal with any trouble that comes or any joy that comes, and I will maintain an even keel. I will just walk the straight path, and nothing will bother me, and I will just be just, just fine. Why? Because I've got me, myself. But me, myself, and I, I'm a liar. I lie to myself. Everything's okay. It'll all work out. She'll be right. And the reality of the world comes crashing in on us. And the reality of the troubles that we face come in. And we might not be attached to a Roman guard, but we definitely have things that are attached to us that bring us down. And we say, I'm weak and I'm unable and how could I possibly be content in this? And Paul reminds us, in Christ, in Christ you can be content because you are not alone. You have been formed into a new man and a new woman. And you are joined together with all those whom I have called to be new men and new women. And some of them you get to hang out with on Sundays. And some of them you get to hang out with in your house. And some of them you get to hang out as you walk along the street. And some of them are on the other side of the world and asleep right now. And some of them are just north of you in countries you don't understand their language. And some of them are hidden in caves because they're so afraid to come out for persecution that might come. But all of them are joined together into the marvelous, magnificent body of Christ that holds us up. And it doesn't belittle the things that we have when we think about those who have things that are far worse that they're facing. It doesn't mean that my things aren't really all that important. Because what God says is, no, in all things I pull you together so that you can overcome them. You have my strength in them because you're together. Because I have made you whole. I have made you to be in Christ. 
This Sunday's Palm Sunday. And we're celebrating Palm Sunday by waving palms. And it made me think about it, a couple of things. I was talking to my friend about it, and he was saying, it, it seems sort of disingenuous that we're waving these palms around. Because we know what happened in a week. We know that this week is Holy Week for those of us who follow the Bible and have read the story, or maybe you've just accidentally stumbled into a church at some point and you heard it. That We know that Jesus, by the end of this week, is dead and in a grave. And so, on some, by the very same people who were waving palms, four days later they say, crucify him. Glory, glory, you are King David. You are the one who's taking the throne. Crucify him. And so my friend was saying, it's sort of disingenuous, isn't it, that we're celebrating this thing that they did who was really sort of half-hearted at best. And I said, yeah, but we know the story. <laughs> and so we can wave our palms. But it made me think about the apostles. Those guys who were hanging out with him, those guys who'd watch one of their own betray him, that will watch one of their own betray him later. Those guys who had been walking along and were continually told by Jesus, do you not yet understand? <laughs> Those guys, when they walk into Jerusalem and Jesus is on the donkey and they're waving palms and Hosanna's being said, in their minds and in their hearts, do you think that they begin to think to themselves, oh, this is bad? No. No. In their hearts and in their minds, they begin to look at it and go, well, he should probably be like on a steed or a stallion. I mean, a donkey's a little off, but my goodness, it's coming true, man. Guys, high fives. We've been walking with this guy for three years, right? And like all of a sudden, he's going to get crowned, and he's going to sit on the throne, and we're taking the Romans down, and it's going to be awesome. Power team. Right? Four days later, everything goes to pot. What, what happened? What's going on? We know. The story tells us that they don't stay firm. That they're not like, guys, 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 you're making a mistake. He's king. Like, don't you remember waving those palms? They're like those classic cartoons. Out of there. Hiding quick as they could be. It's really easy for us to be content when we think everything's going our way. It's real easy for us to say, I trust Jesus when it seems like Jesus really has our back the way we want him to have our back. But what Paul is saying is that he has your back even when you don't think he does. That his strength is sufficient for you completely in everything. And so raise your palm branch and sing glory, hallelujah to God. Not with a blind eye, but with an assurance that he will walk you through and never by yourself, but with those who are with you, with those he has gathered in to be the body along with you. And so, in response to that, 
we should say, joyful. <laughs> I am joyful because of shared life. I am joyful because you are in my life. Yes, I annoy you sometimes, but aren't you joyful that I am here? <laughs> we should be joyful. We respond rejoicing together. Let's pray. Father God, take these words. Let them be your words. Let them not fall short. Father, if they are not your words, let them burn up. Let them go away. But if they are your words, we pray that they will take root in our hearts. They will bear good fruit to bring you glory and honor. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Would you please turn to...